This is the Drive-In Podcast. Take one. Bada bing, bada boom. Welcome to the 73rd episode of the Drive-In Podcast. On today's episode, we have the Express Checkup with yours truly, Dr. O. We have our trailer roundup, a brief one this week. We have our review of the tragedy of Macbeth, and then our top five Cohen Brothers films. How are you? So use the bathroom now. Grab that popcorn and enjoy the 73rd episode of the Drive-In Podcast. Episode 73 of The Drive-In is here. Shout out Charlie McAvoy of the Boston Bruins. Bruins on an absolute heater. <laughs> Ricky Flex, how are you doing? What have you been watching? Talk to me, kid. Good, good, good. Nobody. Nobody on HBO Max just got released. Yeah, just came on there. Watch that. Great flick. They're a little slow in the beginning. Some uh, like, what the heck's going on? But all in all, loved it. Love nobody. Go check that out on HBO Max. It was like... That was like right at the pandemic, like right at the beginning where it was in theaters, but also VOD didn't really get to check it out. Now, if you have HBO Max subscription, you got to see it for free. Finally got to check it out. So nobody like I think it got overpraised on the action sequences just because you have like an older Bob Odenkirk, an unexpected actor like doing it. A lot of comparisons to John Wick. But personally, I didn't think it was near like the John Wick sequences, but I liked it. I would be open to seeing Bob Odenkirk return to that role. Hopefully he's feeling healthy and all after the scary had last year. Right, right. And better call Saul. Another season of that's coming out. So we'll see what he does. But I'm just interested now, like post health scary, he'll be healthy again. And then post Better Call Saul, is he going to go this Liam Neeson route and go action like post uh, like in his older age, like go the action route or now like with the health scare and everything you think, oh, maybe he goes back to the dramas and maybe supporting acting like he was in The Incredibles 2 and he was in uh, another big movie like drama. I'm trying to think Bob Odenkirk. Um, do you remember it? I'm trying to think right now, but I do have an arc that I would like him to take for his career. Like as he gets like this middle age type of actor post like big TV show, right? Couple supporting roles. You know who I want him to kind of like mirror J.K. Simmons. I think yeah. he'd be a similar actor to like a J.K. Simmons who is a scene stealer. Maybe won't he- he- like garner a lot of attention headlining a movie, but I feel like he could be that scene stealer that is like J.K. Simmons is like known for now as one of the best supporting actors. I think he could do that at this age and maybe garner some acclaim like Simmons has. You know, you see that? Yeah, I, I that's if I had to guess what you were gonna go where you you were gonna go with that, I was gonna say that J.K. Simmons for sure. Wow. But yeah, and you could see like he was in some like critically acclaimed movies, but not in like main supporting roles, just side roles like Little Women. Dolomite is my name, The Post, Disaster Artist. Like he was in all these like big time critic, critically acclaimed movies, but in small roles. But maybe he can get one of these like big supporting roles for some of these movies. That would be the next step I would like to see him not go the nobody Liam Neeson route. Like pair him up with like a, I want to say, what kind of director would you see him like work with? Like who would you like to see? I could see see him him working with Sorkin. Really? Yeah, I got, I don't know. I could kind of see that. Quick witted. The quick dialogue and banter, I could totally see him working and uh, working with Sorkin. I like that pick, Ricky. That, that, that's smart. Um, 
I'm surprised you had J.K. Simmons in mind just like I did. I, th- I felt like I was being really unique there, and you were just like, nah, that, that was the obvious one, dude. Well, um, both late surges in their career, big time. Like, they were big earlier in the 2000s. Right, right, right. And uh, we got Cohen's brothers top five today. Yes. Have you been catching up on any Cohen's brothers movies? Maybe you haven't dabbling, seen dabbling, dabbling. Uh, I don't want to give away too much, but they have a lot more movies than I thought. I thought they're they have more, 19, I think. Yeah. So I have uh, just as a precursor here, have not seen half of the Coen's brothers movies. I've seen, I've seen about like, 10. I think it's nine or yeah, 10. I think, seen. I think around nine or 10, it would be the same as me. Bits and pieces of other ones though. Like I can still comment on other, like other movies, but not to the point where I'm a Coen's brother expert and I'm at the point of my podcasting movie, movie podcasting career where I can comfortably say, I know everything about their filmography. Right, right. And like, like there's been some good ones that I haven't seen that I think are well regarded, like Intolerable Cruelty. Um, what was their first one? Their Blood first Simple. One? Blood Simple. So like that was the first ever full feature that I haven't even seen before. Miller's Crossing of her is unbelievable. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen that either. So like so, those won't be making our top five, but I feel <laughs> guilty because maybe they would if I if we actually saw them. Yeah, but like I've seen what well, we've seen the bangers, the ones that people have heard of, then they can relate to. And we've seen some of the more obscure ones. It should be an interesting list. I told myself I'm going to watch a bunch of Cohen's brothers movies this weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Right. When I'm not watching football, when I'm not coaching, I'm going to find a way to like watch Cohen's brothers. And I was like, OK, let's watch some new ones. And then I see on HBO Max right when I open it up. No country for old men. Damn, we're doing it again. So I can talk about it at length. It's going to be obviously like a top three, I would it's, say, for both of us. It's similar to the Paul Thomas Anderson's. Like you're, you're like, oh, I should rewatch probably like Punch Drunk Love and Hard Eight. I should probably watch rewatch these like smaller scale ones or 20 years ago. But then you're like, you see that just right there in front of you on Netflix or HBO Max. It's like, yeah, you're going to watch There Will Be Blood. Yeah, I, I literally crushed four Coen's Brothers movies the last two days. I, I did. Uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which I've only I've, I've seen parts of. It's been like one of those late night things. So like I mean to watch this. I put it on. I fall asleep right after. I'm like, damn, I gotta like rewatch it again. I finally turn it on in the morning, so I rewatched. I'd watch the whole thing. I'll give you my thoughts later on that. But uh, I watched Inside Lou Davis this weekend. Phenomenal, phenomenal movie. I watched uh, Fargo again. I've seen Fargo maybe ten times in my life. Like I just, it's it one so of the most rewards. It could be the most rewatchable Coen's Brothers movie, but I did Blood Simple is on HBO Max. I'm going to crush that. And what else did I want to watch? I'm going to watch Hail Caesar again. I've seen that a couple times. Hail Caesar should be interesting talking about that. Can't wait. Uh, Ricky Flex, moving on to Batman. We got some huge news coming. Huge, as Ricky Flex would say, massive. So we had... Official runtime. It's going to be two hours and 55 minutes, right? We're looking at a superhero epic here. Uh, I believe the longest Batman movie of all time and the second longest superhero movie that's ever been released. We also got a first clip from the Batman. And we're, only, we're just over a month away from the movie releasing. Get hyped, people. Let's start out with the runtime, Ricky Flex. Two hours, 55 minutes. Too long. Not enough. Thoughts? Yeah, so first off here, so Zack Snyder's Justice League was four hours, two minutes. Avengers Endgame oh, yeah, yeah. three hours, two minutes. And then we're going to get this one, which also has eight minutes of credit scenes. So we're probably going to see intro to the Penguin series, intro to the Gotham PD series, intro to whatever you want to say. 
very excited for the potentially sequel. Already. Eight minutes. That's in potential sequel. Maybe a Joker, Barry Kagan. You don't know, but that's awesome. But going to the wait, your question is here. So I remember when the trailer came out, and as the casting news were be, was being announced, right? We're getting Paul Dano as the Riddler. We're getting this and that. I made a joke saying that my only worry with this movie is that it won't be able to capture all these characters and all these blending storylines clearly. And that it might not oh, yeah. be long enough. The movie might not be long enough. God dang it. Warner brothers. When you think they meddle in with, with the filmmakers, they said, Matt Reeves, get us ingratiated into this world, establish this goth Gotham city to this audience. And God dang it. They did it. They did it. So hopefully it's enough time, Dr. O, because three hours, hopefully it's enough time, but it will be. Well, yep. I'm excited. Zack Snyder punch in the air right now. Yes. Here in the news that he's gets like that. We have a three hour epic that he is allowed to make under the Warner Brothers umbrella. Absolutely punch in the air with fury. Uh, but I couldn't agree more with you. We got a lot of villains to introduce here. A lot of supporting characters and uh, it's going to be action packed, dude. And it's going to, it's not going to go through the monotony of, okay, here comes young Bruce Wayne. Here comes his parents. They're getting murdered. We're jumping into year two of Battinson wearing the cape and cowl, right? It was just going to have audiences excited. There's going to be, I, I mean, it. I want as much time with Batman as possible. There's other movies I watch um, where obviously if it's a three-hour runtime, like that's a huge commitment of my time. And if it's not a character, I already have a familiarity with and I adore I'm not going to be as open to this but because the excitement this movie has garnered the trailers the posters the music this movie's promotion has not made a wrong turn at any point and I think the runtime announcement's perfect and I think uh you could say actually the last trailer gave away a little too much yeah I was gonna and say I, they I, might I didn't necessarily want this first clip go ahead sorry no I, I was gonna say my own my new worry is that they're showing too much. They might be showing too much here. They've been showing a lot of clips, yeah. a lot of trailers. Might be showing a little too much. Right. And a big mystery about this movie was the Gil Coulson character, one that was being talked about a decent amount uh, and who was going to play. And we knew Sarsgaard was going to be this character. And the first clip we get is Sarsgaard as Gil Coulson. And we have Jeffrey Wright as Commissioner Gordon saying, oh, uh, Gil Coulson went missing. Oh, we found him immediately. I was like, God damn it. So, like, I wanted to figure out, like, more. I just, I just want to see it for myself. Like, don't give me any tidbits about this plot. We don't need to see any clips. We have the greatest trailers of all time. Like, we did don't you, need clips. Did you did you know that was um, Sarsgaard in the trailer? No. I, I thought it was, and I didn't say anything. I meant to say it, but I, in the back of my mind, I was always saying that that's going to be not Bill Sarsgaard. Uh, what's which Sarsgaard? Not Sarsgaard. What's his name? What's that dude's name? Ah, oh, here we go. Now I got to look up the cast, cast of the Batman. That's what's that actor's name? That long. Supporting character in every movie. I, I Peter Sarsgaard. Peter Sarsgaard. Peter. I knew he was a SARS guard. He just doesn't look anything like his brothers. If they are brothers, I assume they are. Bill, right? We don't Bill, look anything like Bill Peter. and uh, Alex. Yeah, the stud in the Northman. But yeah, I was I was shocked to see that. Uh, what do you think of the clip in general, Ricky Flex? I know you didn't really want to see it, but what do you think about what you got from Pat's in there? So, I'll admit something. I didn't watch the whole clip. 
I started it's only two minutes. I know, but I started watching it and then I just turned it off because I was like, eh, do I really want to see it? I was watching football at the time. I was like, ah, oh, I want to focus, like have my undivided attention to this. Wow. And I was thinking when I was like thinking about going back to it, I was going into bed. I was like, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. Wow. I don't you know. Have so, so much, you have so much better strength than I do. I watched it like five times. Yeah. So I have not seen the entire clip, but now that we're talking about it, I might as well just watch it. It. I, I got to say Pattinson and he doesn't say a word in the clip. It just, it's a lot of physical acting. It's like, it doesn't give anything away about like his character, which I liked. Uh, you got Jeffrey Wright doing most of the talking throughout, but I will say like the vibes that Pattinson's given off, like very much like the emo Kurt, Kurt Cobain type of vibes that um, Matt Reeves was talking about. Mm-hmm. But I am excited with the way it's going. I hope we don't get any more clips. I don't want anything with uh, the Riddler. I want to be completely shocked three, uh, like three hours worth of shock, I should say. And that's impossible, obviously, given the trailers and how much has been teased. But that's what I want to see. I want to be I want I want twists and turns. I want unexpectedness, not what Batman versus Superman gave us, because they pretty much with their last trailer told us the entire plot of the movie. They spoiled Doomsday. OK, let's see if Warner Brothers has improved their promotion of their superhero films. Um, What else we got here, Ricky Flex? Well, something interesting and I wanted to bring up, we got the Oscars coming up in a few months, right? Push back later than usual, no longer in February for this year. But we have a couple movies that are up for consideration in multiple categories. I just want to list a few here and then pose a question. We have The Boss Baby, Family Business, up for Oscar contention this year, or could be uh, voted on. We have Clifford, the Big Red Dog, our mortal enemy in this podcast, more specifically my mortal enemy, is now available to be voted on in the Oscars. We have Dear Evan Hansen, one of the most, like I guess, frowned upon movies of this year. Next, Free Guy is available to be voted on by the Oscars. Paw Patrol, the movie, also available. And then we have 270 other films that are now eligible. So I wanted to pose this question, Ricky Flex, before we get into the checkup. What's going to be the movie that quote unquote doesn't belong in terms of the nominations this year? I remember we had like this, uh, we had Suicide Squad won an Oscar for best makeup back in 2017, right? After its 2016 release. What's going to be that movie that you look at all the nominations? You're like, what the hell is it doing here? Well, when we think of the Oscars, I think of like the big six awards and then some of the lower awards. And there's a movie right now that's getting. That's that that's making a, a push in this race for the Oscars here. It's making a push on a, on the campaign trail, and that movie is House of Gucci. Oh, okay. They are pushing on this campaign. Jared Leto got a third nomination at the SAG Awards. Only other person to ever do that was Chris Cooper. Like, that's wow. incredible that he got he's got another one. So he's, he's going to be, company. and he got one in the Golden Globes, maybe. And we all know Lady Gaga got nominated for both. But uh, she pushed out Kristen Stewart. <laughs> that's, Spencer, that's unbelievable. Who everyone was already ready to give her the Oscar. But she might not even get nominated anymore. So We told we, we kept saying that she was going to win. Like, once that movie came out, we're like, right. okay. Like, the best actress is, like, closed. But after SAG, it's all up for grabs. So House of Gucci... And it's also up for uh, ensemble because of the cast, like whatever, like Trial Chicago 7-1 and they didn't win an Oscar. But if you win the ensemble, like you're probably like 
going to get a lock for a nomination for best picture, one of the top 10, which is and absurd. For the acting categories, if you're an ensemble, you're going yeah. with actor, supporting actor, actress, you know? So, I, yeah, I don't know if he'll get a best picture in that top 10 nomination, but that's like the one right now that I can't wrap my head around where these awards, like the, these critics and everyone going, like the people that have nominations and votes that they're putting, they're putting forth House of Gucci. It makes no sense. The Golden Globes, it makes sense. They're trying to drive people to watch their broadcasts or they're, they're historically corrupt. So it makes sense. But everything else isn't making sense. That's the one that sticks out, I guess, in the big six category that you're talking about is House of Gucci. But in terms of like makeup design, I think it's alongside Cruella. It's in like costume design. It's like they're going neck and neck for that one. Um, in terms of like the big six also, talk about best picture, like potential nominations. I think Spider-Man No Way Home will not even come close, right? Based on like the um, recent news, right? That's been coming that, that about these Oscar pushes that are being made. You just don't hear this conversation on Twitter. You don't hear it on any of these film websites, Rotten Tomatoes, yada, yada. You don't see any push for Spider-Man No Way Home. Like that's going to actually be impactful. Uh, but in terms of like every other category, non-big six, Ricky Flex, like Cruella, I just brought up costume design. That movie kind of sticks out. I actually liked Cruella a lot. I, I know you did too, but like, is there any other movie that is like, we're looking at sub 50% of Rotten Tomatoes, maybe sub 50 score from us. That's going to like stick out. Like maybe Eternals in some capacity. Oh, Eternals is a go one. Like lower category. Eternals is a go one. I was thinking, um, nah, Eternals, God. But I was thinking uh, Jennifer Hudson, Respect. That's looking like that's going to, she might get nominated instead of Kristen Stewart as well. Yeah, just a movie that sticks out like that. Yeah, respect because yeah. no, because it came out in the summer. No one's thought about it. Right. Like why? Like who would ever address that movie? But mm-hmm. now, and it could be costume design too. The best actress category has just become like the most like, I guess like, I don't know. It just seems like everyone's attracted to it now, and it seems so wide open, and you don't know what's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, based off what happened in these and, earlier award season. And Rachel Zegler didn't get nominated from the SAGs either. So it's like the only locks, quote unquote, to get nominated. It's like Nicole Kidman and being the Ricardos, which we still haven't reviewed, but we probably won't. And then uh, Olivia Coleman, probably. And then Lady Gaga looks like she's the lock to get nominated, which is absurd. We also got to talk about Ricky Flex. You brought up the SAG Awards, Tender Bar, Ben Affleck. Tender Bar is Tender movie, Bar. as a movie sticking out compared to the rest of these major uh, releases. And then also like the critical reception of these movies. Like Tender Bar seems to stick out as one like, hey, that's a pretty subpar movie and it's getting a major nomination, you know? Yeah, definitely subpar movie, but Ben Affleck, Batfleck, love him, proud for him, or happy for him. Looking forward to his 2022. Deep water, here we go. Let's go, Affleck. Uh, let's get to the checkup, uh, old school checkup this week. We're not going to do express checkup style. We're not going to give you the whole rundown. There's a lot of news today, but a lot of irrelevant news. So we're going to hit give you the big hitters. Ricky Flux, we got to go with the biggest of all hitters to start here. Then we talk about the Batman. Who's the star of the Batman? Robert Pattinson himself. Guess what? He is in talks to star in Bong Joon-ho's next film for Warner Brothers. Joon-ho's upcoming film is going to be an adaption of Mickey 7. It's going to be following a story of a disposable employee that's sent on suicidal missions to colonize the ice world Niflheim. 
I think I pronounced that right. After one iteration of the person dies, a new body is gener- regenerated with most of his memories intact. Dude, Pattinson, Bong Joon-ho, tell me your thoughts. How excited are you for this film, Flix? The collaboration we don't deserve. This is unbelievable. We're not worthy. First film off of an Oscar. He's going with Robert Pattinson, who's coming off of the Batman. Like, we don't deserve this collaboration. This is perfect. You feel like Robert Pattinson, frequent collaborator with A24. And then you have Bong Joon-ho, who makes A24's type of movies. And then you have a high concept sci-fi thriller where they're both kind of, they've done, I'm thinking like Snowpiercer thriller and then also societal class structure hierarchy versus high life for Robert Pattinson, H24 production. Just, I I thought high life immediately when I saw this. Right. So it just feels like this is up both their alleys. I love this. I think this collaboration is near perfect. And it's with Warner Brothers. I'm a big Warner Brothers stan. I love to see Warner Brothers getting into this sci-fi thriller action and not like a reminiscence with Hugh Jackman that came out last year. Forgotten movie of 2021. Thank God for good reason. Love to see this. Can't wait. This will be highly anticipated. Maybe the most anticipated movie when it, whatever year it comes out, non-comic book related. This is a uh, really strategic from Bong Joon-ho. He's coming off parasite what we see a lot of times when a, a director has a best picture winner and then wins a best director similar to like a guillermo del toro they'll take some time off they'll be okay my follow-up or my follow-up to an oscar winner has to be something special you know like guillermo del toro things like oh, wait, nightmare nightmare alley like popular like thriller from back in the 1940s let's bring another actor that was initially leo dicaprio now let's now make it bradley cooper okay pretty good follow-up to his best picture winner and his best director win with the shape of water bong joon ho parasite right best first foreign film to win best picture he's thinking okay collaborations who can i work with right that's gonna like basically keep up this pace that he's now uh set as a precedent right uh, he's saying like okay this is the level of filmmaker. You're now going to be judged. Like you are, people are going to compare your work to Parasite, no matter what you do. Who do you want to combine with? Pattinson. And in Pattinson's side, you're coming off, right? All these indie films, work with 824. And now you're looking towards the Batman, like big blockbuster, all right? Afterwards, you don't want to be typecast and you don't want to maintain just the status of someone who's in the limelight as a superhero. Uh, team up with this best, director winner i think the combination's perfect the sci-fi element i think both um patented and bong joon ho are gonna excel i i just can't i i think i have to read this book mickey seven i think i have to like get, get like gain some insight on what this story actually is uh but i thought high life immediately when i uh saw the news too ricky flux i thought that was a good instant uh connection there definitely and then you mentioned like bong joon ho like you coming off a of best director best picture win you're thinking, oh, he might take some time off. Nope, he's going to do this. But he's also working on an animated project. He's doing that. And he's been working as a producer slash writer on the Snowpiercer TV series. And Parasite series is coming. Remember that? Right. So like, he's just like, he got the recognition sooner than like other great directors of their time, Martin Scorsese or others. Um, and he's like, all right, no, let's continue this hype train. Let's continue this momentum going. And he's going to team up with Robert Pattinson and do all these other projects. Very interesting uh, method or uh, 
route for him to take. But that's something that as audience, we want to see more Bong Joon-ho content. We want to see more content from the great directors. So this is what we love. So I love Bong Joon-ho. I love this. It's it's interesting because it seems like there's two different routes here. Like after you get like a best director win or you win a best picture, one is like the Ridley Scott route where you just keep making movies, right? It's just like, it's like <laughs> volume, out. volume, volume. It doesn't matter how good they are as long as like they're true to yourself and you just want to keep working with great actors. And some people are like, okay, the follow-up needs to be something special. And it seems like Bong Joon-ho is kind of taking that route, in my opinion, right? From what, 2019's win, right? Where now it's 2022. Uh, we talked about like, like even like a Jordan Peele who has a new movie coming out this year, like he recognized get out what a phenomenon phenomenon it was new, new movies now coming out for two years with us, right? New one with nope in 2022. So it's just like, they recognize like when they hit that, like uh, that prestige level, like where they have to take their game next. And I respect it. I love it. And they start working with incredible actors only, only like gains uh, anticipation for their projects. And I will say too, like you mentioned Ridley Scott, like pumping out projects left and right. Like it's still like Bong Joon-ho selective as well. Like he's only made like 10 full feature films or less. So he's still very selective with his work. And it's for the most part, highly, uh, highly, like very well done. So I do like the selectiveness of it still, even though he's worth getting right back to work, which I also love. So it's not like the Ridley Scott, like you're going to make um, like Body of Lies, with Leo yeah. and Russell Crowe, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, like it's, it's, it won't reach that lower level quality, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about one of our favorite film franchises here to go into like, the franchise blockbuster genre. Mission Impossible 7 has been delayed four times now from its original date, right? It's now going to release on July 14th, 2023. We got to wait a year and a half for the next Mission Impossible movie now. And then we also have Mission Impossible 8 obviously being delayed another year from July 7th, 2023 to June 28th, 2024. Ricky Flex, how sad are you? This is this is low-key, like the worst delay there is, there's been. You could say Top Gun Maverick, but... Morbius. Right, right. But Morbius is Morbius, right? It's not like the... Like yeah, it's just Spider been delayed Man, right? six times. Right. But I guess like, I guess Impact from COVID would be the Mission Impossible franchise. They reached their peak. Remember Fallout? <laughs> like, yeah, no, I just, I, I, I'm just thinking of the Tom Cruise rant. I, I just oh, keep thinking yeah. about that, how it keeps getting delayed. But Tom Cruise is like, imagine how angry he was and not wearing masks. If this gets delayed again, like the production is like, I right. want to see another rant. I want to hear another rant. But it's taken this long to release the next one after your biggest slash most successful movie in the franchise. That's not a good sign. The hype is dwindling. People are forgetting Fallout. This isn't good. And you need the momentum to keep going because guess what? There's been news with the space studio that's going to be done by December 2024. Mission Impossible 8 won't even, won't even be out by then. They could finish the space one, for God's sakes, before maybe finishing Mission Impossible 8 by the rate of these delays. Just scrap so, Mission Impossible 8 and just make it the space movie that... uh Tom Cruise is going to do Maybe. Did, did they already shoot both movies or they only shot seven? I don't know. I know they shot seven, but I don't know if they shot eight. But my point is they could keep delaying this and then we could be done wrapping up the filming of the space movie in space. And then it'll be time when we just drop all three at the same time. Like just have a whole Saturday <laughs> at the movie theaters watching Mission Impossible movies. Can you imagine if you had like Mission Impossible seven drop 
And then like a month and a half later, eight drops. Like that would be incredible that, you know, how they shot the Lord of the Rings, like yes. all three in a row. And they, they released them three straight years, which is incredible. I was like, what if they did that with Mission Impossible where they just like, okay, back to back, let's just go boom, boom right here. So that, two months away, never been done. That would be special. Yeah. And I'd be down. I would be down for that. Oh, and the box office would be down. I just think that the hype is dwindling for this project. And the Fallout more was arguably the peak of the Mission Impossible franchise. And yeah, yeah. I don't know. Just seeing like Spider-Man No Way Home, obviously it's a comic book and it's Spider-Man. It's different, but you could still have gotten success at the box office. Look at No Time to Die. You could have gotten your, you could have made your money back easily and then some, but they decided not to do it. And now they're risking the hype dwindling so much where they just break even. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah but COVID is going to be long gone by 2023. You know, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Don't give me that look, Ricky Flex. <laughs> I'm not. You, you, that is a painful look you just gave me. The, the side eye saying it's going to be gone by 2023. Come on. We have fingers crossed it's going to be like depleted by the summer. Come on. I'm an optimist. Okay. Glass half full. Somebody has can't to say the same for podcast. you. <laughs> you're, you're just real with them. You're just real with them. Uh, let's talk about a movie that we are very familiar with, or at least the original, uh, a movie that uh, when we were kids, I want to say five, six years old, we watched with our, our Nana up in Kingston the first time we saw it. We've been waiting on a sequel. We did hear there was going to be a sequel for this film, and it officially has a title. So there's a Chicken Run sequel that's now being titled Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, and it's going to release in 2023 on Netflix. Dandy Newton, Zach Levi, and Bella Ramsey are going to star <laughs> Ricky Flex. What do you think? think about this title for this next sequel to the Ardman franchise with the uh, Chicken Run? Yes. Yeah, uh, so usually I, I don't overreact to titles. I never do. But this title is making me nervous this sequel there ain't gonna be a third one yeah it doesn't seem like this could get dark real quick with this title third one this could get really dark and no mel gibson i thought he was a good lead i know obviously he was a fantastic lead in that movie he was a perfect rocky but now you're replacing him like with zach levi like way too charismatic like like he's definitely not playing rocky so it's maybe new chickens are we talking new chickens here so is Rocky going to be like a legend that they're all going to look up to? Like, I don't know, but I will say this dawn of the nugget makes me think, are they going to be that self-aware that I don't know the word, just like meta, like too meta, like the matrix, you know how like they like kept referencing Warner brothers, mendling in with the trilogies. I'm afraid this is going to be like that, but like with McDonald's and but things they, like that. Oh yeah. Where it's just like, it's like leaning. So I, it's like more of a joke. Less I hate than like talking an about movie. I don't like talking about my personal tweets, but I had a very funny tweet about this. Oh, like no. the villain of, of this movie should be Ronald McDonald. <laughs> like it should be the villain. <laughs> like I, I, like I, I put up a gif of him spinning the guitar, like the villain colon. And he's like playing the guitar. <laughs> Just like, it'd be hilarious if they did incorporate and partner with McDonald's for this movie. But uh I mean, if they were, it'd be Dawn of the McNugget, you know, they would just yeah. use it as a full on ad for them. What? But what? I think, yeah, like, I don't think this movie is not going to be relevant for people that are younger than us, really. It's mm-hmm. going to be a sequel to a movie that came out in 2000, like when we were five years old. 
So I don't think there, there is an intention to make a third one just because, right, This young kids don't find this appealing. And this animation, but, they're not familiar mm-hmm. with. You know what I mean? I think that, and this is a Netflix movie, by the way. So I think that this one's really, I'm a, I'm a little afraid that it's what I, all right, let me back up here. What I want it to be with this title is like a Toy Story 3. Like Toy Story 3, when they're all about to die going into the fire, raging fire. Like what, that's what I want to see. But now with, this would be, the, this would be the anime movie where that's like appropriate. Like right. Toy Story, Disney, that doesn't mix Ardman, Netflix. Yeah. Break, give, give us, give us some like sad moments. Give right. us some like where you're or just like your fist. Right. Exactly. Like give us some emotional grasp. But now with this cast being announced, Zach Levi, like the dawn of the nugget, it just seems like more like a Netflix production. This just seems like more like, no, we're going to target younger kids to try to introduce them to this type of thing. It's and, a dark title. It's like they're all gonna die. But I think it's a it's joke. A I think it, I don't think they are. I think it's a joke. Like a well, they are. They thing. are going to die. It's a, it's it is a kids movie at heart. But like if we recall the first Chicken Run, the like the middle of the movie gets pretty dark. It gets oh, kind yeah. of scary. That crazy like, grandma woman. And like person. this animation, we're gonna talk about Wallace and Gromit. There's a new movie coming out there. Like this type of animation has like some scariness to it. It's like. It's like Nickelodeon versus Cartoon Network, like Disney's Nickelodeon, like this, like Wallace and Gromit and Ardman. Like this is more Cartoon Network where it's like, oh, man, like, Ed, Ed and parents, Eddie. are your parents at like six years old letting you watch Cartoon Network? Because like there's some like bolder stuff on there. You know what I mean? And definitely Ed, shout out. Definitely. Because like uh, the director on this uh, did Paranorman. And oh, yeah. uh, so it makes sense. Corpse like, Bride type of thing. Right. So it does make sense where it leans that way. And I guess just like kind of transitioning over to the Wallace and Gromit. I, I, I'll be the hand up. Not a huge Wallace and Gromit fan. But I guess just my thoughts on this would be as in I'm not a fan of the animation versus like a Pixar or something like that. But my thoughts on it are Netflix. Like they're trying to corner the market with this type of animation. Yeah. And there, there are like diehards out there that like love this like as we i was love gonna it. say i have more of an appreciation gromit. for it because it takes very so long much like walls and gromit if twitter existed in 2000 it would be the first edition of like release the snyder cut like that fandom you know <laughs> like those who wanted like Ardman to like come back and make a sequel to right. chicken run make more walls and gromit movies like this type of animation there is a very big cult following they're just older than most of the snyder cut heads but it's also I mean? a problem because you could have people like that but then it's like oh let's make a sequel it's going to take another 10 years to make <laughs> like it yeah. takes so long to make one of these Wallace and Gromit movies. That's just like, you can't really demand a sequel and it loses its hype. It loses, like it just loses a lot of momentum there. Like we were talking with um, earlier with Bong Joo, you got to keep that momentum going. This or like mission impossible. Sorry. Keep that momentum going. This one, it's impossible to keep that momentum going. Yeah. You can't do it. Uh, yeah. It's, so it's just, just gonna... it's been too long. This is like going to mm-hmm. be an old, this is like the Snyder cut dude. Dude, this is very similar where it's like people are getting it after like way longer extended amount of time, but people have been anticipating this movie clamoring for it and it's being granted. Netflix has saved them. So I think it's going to be a bunch of fan service in terms of like making sure the original viewers of this uh, movie enjoy the sequel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, anything else? You good. I'll, I'll uh, so I think that's really all I got. I do want to bring up a funny story here, Ricky Flex. Two fans filed a federal class action lawsuit alleging they were duped into renting the movie yesterday because Ana de Armas appeared in the trailer. 
We got to rewatch this trailer eventually, Ricky Flex. Uh, both paid $3.99 for the movie, and they're now seeking to recoup at least $5 million on behalf of affected customers. Ricky, can we? is this a class action? Can we join this? So first off, to these two fans, bonk. <laughs> Like, so, <laughs> like, come on you're gonna pay Big four time. bucks to see on the armas in this movie that's the only reason that's a bonk and secondly <laughs> and now they're like they're so pissed about it they want five million dollars or they want a group of people to have it that is absurd that they want to see on the armas that bad yeah. yes she was awesome in knives out yes we love her in the new james bond right she's gonna play marilyn monroe right and she's we were duped water. we were duped from the james bond screen time Yes, we Rick, do you want to sue for that? We should sue want, for this James let, Bond screen time, not sue, this. Let's sue for this the five minutes she had in no time to die. And then we could probably make more money than these guys. They're suing for but, yesterday. A yeah. Danny Boyle film. We can make so much more for a James Bond film. Let's Easily. And they're saying on behalf of effective consumers, how many people do you think did this? Five million dollars? <laughs> like, come on. This is for you and put yourself in the news. Like, no way. So these two people, first off, bonk. Second, don't believe you. Fiction. Oh, we're, we're, do, we're doing the James Bond thing. That's a, that'd be great. That'd be great content. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for the checkup this week. Ricky, I do want to talk about a little teaser trailer before we get to the tragedy of Macbeth. Lord of the Rings. We've been waiting for this series. Seems like going on five years now since Amazon acquired the rights to Lord of the Rings. So they released this teaser trailer that showed nothing. Uh, absolutely nothing it's going to be titled the lord of the rings the rings of power first off title sucks <laughs> title Terrible. sucks it we well, can't have rings twice like or it's like it just, onomatopoeia they should, like you just weird. just give it the name lord of the rings that's it just because like the movies they say the fellowship of the ring right the twin towers and you have return of the king just the series should be the lord of the rings when you say the rings of power it's, it gets a little repetitive series going to premiere september 2nd on amazon it's going to follow all the major stories of Middle Earth's second age, including the forging of the rings, the rising of the Dark Lord Sauron, the epic tale of Numenor, and the last alliance of the elves and men. So it seems like you have four seasons right there. Uh, thoughts on this teaser, I guess, Ricky Flips? Well, the teaser sucks. Like, that was pointless. But you had, like, the Game of Thrones. Like, it's hard not to think of Game of Thrones when you're watching this. Because of the fire going through it, you're thinking of the maps and the song going to the Game of Thrones before episode, right? This one, you're thinking of the same thing. And also, you know, middle age, like very similar to Game of Thrones, right? Like all the similar, like story, like not storylines, but, uh, you know, just premise. It's very similar. And this one, it seems like the Forging of the Rings, Rise of the Dark Lord Sauron, Epic Tale, and Last Alliance of Elves and Men. It's like... You, same thing with uh, Game of Thrones. You have so many interwinding storylines where it's all going to come together. It's going to be the same thing. But I love it. <laughs> like the yeah, last of lines of Elves and Men. I was I always think about that when I watch Game of uh, Lord of the Rings. I'm like Game of Thrones. Lord of the Rings. Like what happened? Like what is going on? Like why can't they just like be happy? Like are the elves just too arrogant and too like think they're high up? I don't know. This is going to figure that out for us. I think I'm most excited to see the rise of like Sauron. Like Sauron mm. is such a, like a terrifying like i guess figure if you want to call him a figure yeah in the lord of the rings like lore that i would like i would love to see like the origin story there it's like almost like episode three uh one two and three of star wars going oh. to like the rise of like darth vader it's like i was thinking there. the acolyte series similar it could be that too 
but we just haven't gotten it yet. I right, know what you're saying right. with like the rise of the dark side and everything like that. But um, what else did I want to say? It's going to be interesting because House of the Dragon for Game of Thrones, we don't know when that's coming out. It says 2022, but I don't think we have an exact release date for that film. Are you double checking right now, Flix? No, I was looking at something else. Oh, I thought you you like hit the keyboard so quick after I said like expect a release date for House of the Dragon. I'm like, oh, he's on top of this. No, it's something else. But it'd be fascinating if like Amazon didn't release these all at once, I assume they won't, right? That I assume like this series is big enough. They want to like remain, uh, keep audiences intrigued by having them coming back week after week. Imagine this was coming out like at the same time or right before, right after House of the Dragon, the prequel Game of Thrones series. That would yeah. be interesting. What a rivalry we could have for the next like few years. Yeah, because this is September 2nd, you said. And I just... Yep. For you, I did look up the Game of Thrones prequel series. There is no specific date, but it just says 2022. Maybe winter. That makes sense. Winter, like winter is coming. That makes sense. So maybe after this series. They kept tweeting that. Game Game of Thrones, Thrones. the calendar keeps tweeting that. So probably in the winter time, I'm going to guess. Wow. But um, I think this this series, I'm going to make a statement. Uh This series is so important that like... It's expected to cost a billion dollars. It's the most expensive. Didn't the budget cost 500 million? Yeah, but it's expected to go upwards as seasons go. Oh my God. So this is the most expensive TV production of all time. And if this sucks, then we might see the end of like Game of Thrones style things, unless it's Game of Thrones. Like this is, this is going to be crazy, right? This is going to be crazy. Like this rivalry that we could see, but there is so much more. Oh my God! Who has more pressure to perform here, yes. House of the Dragon or Amazon's oh. Lord of the Rings? What has more pressure to perform? So I want to say this just because this is Prime, like because Amazon Prime, right? Everyone has it for shopping, and you know, but like Prime Video is just not. It's like you have Netflix. I still think HBO Max is far superior, but like Prime, like you have like it's like you have its corners, but it's still not the player, even though it has that amazon base so this you have the you have the budget to do things like this if they don't do this well with this budget then they won't be able to do anything well so this is so big for them but i see the other side of the argument with game of thrones i'm gonna play devil's advocate all right right, you go i'm playing devil's advocate i'm jumping in the end of game of thrones i think enough time has passed where we're ready for a prequel, prequel series in this age of people like, okay, spinoffs, right? Sequels, prequels. Yeah. 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 Enough time has passed to get the bad taste of season eight. Abs- just like out of us, right. It's flowing through us. It's gone for the most part. This needs to bring back vibes of early game of Thrones. If it, it goes too magical and it throws the audience off, right. And it doesn't give them what they loved about the original. And all of a sudden they hate it off the bat. Right. Game of Thrones, like this kind of shuts off any other possibility they have at making another series. Right. Because at because it's crazy to say, because it the height of Game of Thrones was insanity. The lead into season seven, season eight, the talk on social media, it was more than any other show that's existed, but probably since the Sopranos. Like that's more of like blog talk and stuff like that. And people just talking about blog that talk. finale. But we have the point now where. People are ready for it. Can it deliver? And if it does deliver, we want more. If it doesn't deliver, right, HBO, we're probably saying enough. We don't want any more Game of Thrones. Yes. I think 
I think what you said though is key. Enough time has passed. Like if this came out the year after Game of Thrones season eight, then like this would already be a failure. Like they probably wanted banger. to do it earlier too. Yeah, they probably wanted to, and they respected season eight to be receptive. COVID Normally, saved just, like, them. Most of the seasons. Ah, COVID, COVID delay save saved them. them. Like it definitely did. Because if this came out too early, you would have people protesting. Interesting conversation there, Flex. It's gonna. I can't wait for this year of movies and TV. That's gonna do it for. Check up trailer roundup. We will now move to our discussion on the tragedy of Macbeth and Cohen's brothers films. Hey, look, I'm happy for the gig, but who, who wrote this? I did. Okay. So, okay. Good. Shout. Please, Mr. Kennedy, take one and we're rolling. Second, please. Please, Mr. Kennedy. Oh, oh. I don't want to go. Don't show me in the out of space. Please, please Mr. Kennedy. Oh, oh. I don't want to go. Don't show me in the out of space. I sweat when they stuff me in the pressure suits. Bubble helmet, flash Gordon boots. Nowhere a bit in gravity space. Suits. I need to breathe. Outer. Don't need to be a space. Ricky Flex, it's time to talk some Coen Brothers. Yes, sir. We're going to be getting into our top Coen Brothers movies. Of course, The Tragedy of Macbeth, directed by only one of the Coen Brothers, Joel Coen. First time ever. So let's check out this Rotten Tomato score for The Tragedy of Macbeth. We'll give you the Rotten Tomato score. We'll give you the IMDb. We'll give you the synopsis. I mean, do we even wait? We have to give the synopsis, right? I think people just remember this as the tenth grade screenplay that they have to read. Screenplay or like Shakespeare play, you know? Right. So we got Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand starring in this Joel Cohen film. Ninety-three percent on the thermometer. Okay, eighty percent audience score. Shockingly high for a movie. I would guess most audiences or everyday common man wouldn't understand i would say 75 percent of the conversations had although we'll get into how joel cohen kind of goes around this right and he kind of seems to recognize this and uh imdb what do they have the tragedy of macbeth they have it at <laughs> as i google I no idea they have it at 7.4 out of 10 so wow it's, it's not that high to be honest uh, so, Ricky Flex, before we dive into this Joel Cohen movie, can you tell me, we did this with PTA, when, like, what makes a PTA movie? What makes a Cohen Brothers movie to you? To me? Yeah. Cohen Brothers. Like, hmm. That's a good question, because PTA, I think it's a little more obvious, or I don't know about obvious, but I think his isms are more unique to PTA. Distinct, for sure. Yeah, distinct. That's a better one. I think with Cohen Brothers, it's more like, man you have like the humor i think a lot of you have the obvious distinct humor you have the quirkiness there's a lot of quirkiness in it and with the characters especially and when we get to the top five i think we'll talk a lot about quirky characters and also i think another thing is just that i I, I don't want to give away anything this coen brothers rank so it's tough but um i think it's also not like a tarantino type dialogue or like a shakespearean type dialogue but the quirkiness of the characters really like show 
in the dialogue. They're very quick. Yeah. And like I said, quirky, I think is the word for it. And there's a weirdness to it. So, Definitely. And I think that a lot of their best films, really, I, I think some of them are pure Coen brothers, but I think some of them aren't pure Coen brothers. So it's weird. That's why I said it's kind of different than like PTA, where every PTA movie, you could see the isms. Whereas Coen brothers, like, you know, the isms, but they're not in every single one of their movies. So it's like, are they really isms? But they are. Do you see right. what I'm saying? I do. So like, cause this one doesn't really match up with when you think of Fargo and when you think of hail Caesar and when you think of no country for like no country for old men. Uh, I think a commonality that with all their movies, I like the characters are eccentric, like you're saying, but after, after going on this marathon this past weekend, I've noticed that the Coen brothers, they just, they take their audience and they say that like their audience is smart. Like they kind of accept them as like, knowledgeable like viewers and what i mean by that is like i think their movies are excellent like fabulously edited i think they're unreal that's what i've kind of noticed from like cutting up the podcast knowing when to cut certain parts of it like i'm, I'm not saying i'm a cohen brother but i'm saying I a podcast under, or no but country I under, for old men no but i like, cut up videos and stuff like i've grown to appreciate like the editing process and when i watch these movies they're pretty perfect and like the way they um acknowledge certain scenes and they don't show the obvious in a lot of their movies. They're very smart filmmakers and they take their audience as intelligent. So like what I mean by that. Uh, so it's like Anton Chigur, like in no country for old men, his body count, right. His kill count has got to be like 20 to 30 people alone in that movie. But how many people actually die on screen? Probably at like, like five to seven, I would say, but they kind of acknowledge like with those one-on-one -on -one scenes, like they know, like they don't have to show every death. Right. They know like Anton Chigurh, we, he's established his character. We know he's menacing. We don't have to show how menacing he is by him actually killing these people. Right. They've kind of just the audience just after those first couple, they acknowledge like, OK, this guy's a monster. We don't have to show every single one. And like it, it goes in. It's interesting because like No Country for Old Men, they don't even show like the main character, Josh Brolin, die at the end of the movie. They just cut to it. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, he's dead. Like, oh, my God. Right. It's like but, you know, Chigurh got to him and you almost knew it was inevitable. And like. Mm -hmm. Like Fargo, I was watching. It's like they, it's the scenes where they pop open the trunk. You know, he's going to put the body in the trunk. They waste no time. They just show them popping open that. the trunk. And you're just like, yeah, we know what happens. We get it. He's hiding the body. You know, they, they take their viewers as intelligent. And that's important when you acknowledge a movie like Macbeth, where they talk in such like medieval types of ways with Shakespearean type of like literature, obviously mm -hmm. being put to screen. So, I, like, I think that is a big part of it. Uh, this Talk about like the non-commonalities, but you see with a lot of their stuff, a lot of it's uh, like Midwest and even just Western movies. They seem to love yeah. this parts, all, those parts of their storytelling experiences. They seem like they're really devoted to it. But uh, yeah, so I think the biggest commonality, definitely the eccentric part. And then also they're just geniuses. They're very smart with how they make films. They're just so, smart people. Let's go through Tragedy of Macbeth a little bit. Uh, did it, First of all, did it crack your top five? It did not, Dr. L. <laughs> did not crack mine either. But what did you think of the Tragedy of Macbeth starring Denzel? And I'll say this as well, just to cover our bases. It didn't crack my top 10. <laughs> I, I have seen 12 Coen Brothers movies. It did not crack my top 10. So, And they made 18 or 19. So that says a, a lot about how good their work is. But then again, this movie... 
I don't know. I'm not a big Shakespearean true. Like this is very true to the text, true to the, the true to the, uh, like to Shakespeare, true to the play. They yeah. keep all the dialogue and it's very formal, very English or Scottish because at the end of the day, all in all, Macbeth is such a simple movie uh, story. It is. It's the simplest story of all time. It's the story like really broken down as a young commander who's like a hero wants to become a hero gets told he or become king he wants to become king he gets told he will be king and then he gets too ambitious and then he becomes paranoid and goes crazy and he has a crazy wife who kind of like pushes him to do it yeah and then it's like a tragic uh what's it called the tragic downfall what's that called again yeah it's like no it's a tragedy that's just what it is that's why it's called the tragedy of Macbeth. right It's it's like the birth of it so this is just such a simple uh, movie or story, but the movie's so hard to follow because of the dialogue. You can't, right. follow, and you don't, you're not like living in whenever this century is. So it's hard to also like understand and comprehend some of the things that they're like, you're taking the audience as smart, but I don't live in whatever century this is. So I don't understand everything going on. And they're really making you think like you should understand. I'm not like a, is, this isn't when like William Shakespeare's alive and you're, the audience is like understanding every single word because they understand the times. No, this is completely different. So I think that's where like for me personally, I don't love this genre. Right. And then also it has the element. It's actually set when it was meant to be set. Like we see so many Shakespeare adaptions. Like we talk about Romeo and Juliet with Leo back in 95. At least they did it in a modern day setting. So it's a little bit easier to follow. It's a very recognizable story. I think the Cohen, like Joel Cohen in this film, he was like, okay, everyone has seen this movie has heard about Macbeth. Not maybe they haven't seen like the movies, like the Lawrence Olivier version or mm-hmm. even earlier than that. But every one of these viewers that watches this is, has sat down and read this play in the 10th grade. Yes. Like everyone has done it. So it's a simple enough Shakespearean story where they can keep the dialogue and not lose the viewer. As I kept watching this movie, I was, I was like so familiar in like with the story. I'm like, yes, it's, as you're saying, it's very simple that I think it, it did work in the end. And I, and I, I, when I was first watching this, I was like, man, I am out on this. It is like 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night. I just watched football all day. I'm going to turn on the tragedy of Macbeth and just fall asleep. <laughs> if I just watch yeah. these like soliloquies the black going and white. on. Yes. These monologues that uh, a deranged Denzel is going on. So you have to watch it at the right time. But when you do capture it, you're like, damn, I feel like this story is, I mean, this, this, the writing itself is more powerful than when I read it, when I heard my next door neighbor reading it in Mr. Deanna's class, you know, but it's just, it, it, it was much more impactful, but it's still, it's like those moments where people are going on the soliloquies. I just, lo- I lost interest completely. Well, you zone out and it's, yeah, I, I fell asleep. It, it's, and the light, like the black and white doesn't help. And I think again, you were mentioning like the Coen brothers taking you for being like audience is smart. And this yeah. is also the, the context. There wasn't a lot of context with a lot of these characters or you just miss it because of this dialogue. It's so quick and it's so formal and it, you just miss the context where you, w- what you need. And if it's so much easier, like in a book, like the book, like a play version of Macbeth, where you could actually read it like you do in school, where you're actually like, it, you can understand because you could slow it down. And just go word by word what's going yeah. on. Yeah, and you're someone to like translate. 
like right. as it happens. This is not like what this is like watching Parasite, except there's no subtitles. You know, it's that's exactly what it is. You're, so you're kind of lost, but it's easy to follow because you're like, oh, but yeah, this guy's going crazy right now. He's sitting on the throne. He wants to kill the king. Like very simple. But it was when Denzel and I thought Denzel, man, as I kept watching, he was pretty pretty awesome in this movie. Oh yeah, he was I, pretty. Spectacular. You could really see like yeah, his play background like this exactly. Was sick. You could like really see like. I don't think like I was looking out because there's rumors or not rumors. Um, He's probably gonna get nominated for an Oscar for this. So I'm like, all right, where's the Oscar moment? Is it going to be like the classic? Is this the dagger, which I see before me? Like, uh-huh. you know what you had to like say in class or whatever, or like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I know I had classic. I, I yeah. had to say that one in front of the class. That was an experience, but I was like, this has got to be the Oscar moment. But like, I was like, it was good. But like, was that the Oscar moment? And I was like, oh. but Dr. O, I'm jumping right to it. My favorite scene of this movie. My favorite scene of this movie is right after, like we could spoil it because Macbeth, everyone knows the story of Macbeth. It's out right, there. Right after Macbeth's, Macbeth's wife commits suicide and then he's just sitting on the throne and then the guy comes in saying, I'm going to kill you. And then With the leaves falling. Right. And then Macbeth's like, because he feels invincible, right? Because he's like, I'm king. I'm bound to be king. I was told by the witches and I'm not going to get stopped. And he's like, nobody, because like, the, I think it was like, what is it? Like, because uh, of the C-section thing, right? Yep. Right. Yeah. It's like anybody that, like any, no, nobody that's ever been born from a woman's womb will kill me. So he's like, I'm, no one's going to kill me. He's invincible. Right. So he's just like going to town. I was like, equalizer three, here we go. <laughs> he's like going. I was just waiting to, waiting for him to break character. And he's like, King Kong ain't got shit on me. <laughs> it like, was thought, insane. But he, he went crazy. And like, but like that moment, it's like, that's like the Denzel we all know. So when he right. snapped into that, you're like, all, like anyone who watched this movie, whether you're a Shakespeare fan or not, and you, as long as you know Denzel, you went crazy during that scene. Right. But I also wanted to say like the performance, before that moment, before Lady Macbeth dies and you have him basically unsure of himself and you have Lady Macbeth baiting him saying, yes, take this crown, whatever, and whatever old Shakespearean language that Francis McDormand was speaking. Mm-hmm, it was like mm-hmm. an unfamiliar character for Denzel to play at that point. How many times have we seen him as like an alpha in a movie where he is just so sure of himself? And it seemed like it, the, the first half of this movie, it was like a Denzel that was like as a character that's confused. And that's like something I, like, I can't recall seeing Denzel in a role like that. Can you? It seems like every time he's been in a movie, he is so just he's supremely confident. So I think it was just a, it was like a, just a different perspective or a different angle. We see Denzel. You feel that at all? Yeah, I I think. So like Macbeth, I mentioned like it's such a simple story, but I think like the one thing, and I said we we both said that Joel Cohen really kept stayed true to Shakespeare here. But I think the big thing, the big change he made was the casting. He had senior citizens playing Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. You had don't a, think that, yeah? Because like the, like uh, Macbeth lived that old, like because yeah, that, and also like he's a commander or whatever. And like he's supposed to be like late twenties, early thirties, Macbeth, and same with Lady Macbeth. He's ambitious to the crown. He's not supposed to get it yet, but he takes, he cheats and gets it. That's the whole point. But instead, Joel Cohen spinned it where it's like, oh, he this is his last, this is his last shot at like he has to do this so he can get the crown because he's getting older. That's the way I viewed it. And I think Denzel, the way he portrayed Macbeth in this, was true to the text in itself. But in that Joel Cohen spin 
was very effective. I thought that was actually very good. And again, like my favorite scene is like probably the, it's not like an Oscar moment scene at all. Cause it's like an action scene. It's, it's just Denzel. It's just Denzel going to town doing work. And I was just like, dang, that's awesome. I don't know if he'll win an Oscar. I don't think he will, but I do. If he gets nominated, I'll be like, all right, that was a good enough performance for top four of the year. Yeah. yeah like I, I think like I, he definitely deserves a nomination. I like obviously don't understand every word he said, but like what, it's cool to actually see these words that we read in high school put to screen with actual emotions. Like when we read these soliloquies and we had to memorize them, these 14 line poems in high school, we were just like trying to memorize them. We, there was no emotion put to it. But when you, when you see the conversations that are being had with this Shakespearean dialogue, I thought the acting was so good. I understood what was happening. Even, even though I wasn't like up to date, like I didn't reread Macbeth or the play or anything like that. I hadn't seen a version of it. I was just like, oh, I remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you see the, the the passion of these actors. And I don't, I don't think just Denzel was uh, good. He was fantastic. But I, I liked. I want to talk about Corey Hawkins. Mm, he McDuff. is he McDuff. He is a low key one of the most talented young actors versatile. in Hollywood. Very versatile. So the first time we're introduced with to him is pretty much in Straight Outta Compton, where he plays Dr. Dre. Then all of a sudden last year, we see him in In the Heights. Breaking out the pipes. Yes, nice pipes, Hawkins, right? (laughs) Him singing. And now we see him doing a Shakespearean play. Like he is super underrated. And that's just like, I think, I feel like he's on the verge of a breakout, you know? Yeah, I think he needs like Trisha Compton's like his coming out role. Like, yes, I am in Hollywood. Like, I am aware. I think he needs like a breakout role similar to like Stephen Yoon had A24, Minari, where it's like, that's oscar nominated or he just needs like a borderline oscar nom like a miles tower whiplash type situation where it's like i'm not only here but i'm here to like do some damage here so like i think he, jesse plemons right like jesse plemons exact as another good one so i think he just needs a role like that and then he could really take off like i'm i'm really excited with, with his career i like how he's very versatile he's like doing very different things i think I, i'm liking his formula that he's putting together here it's not something that you usually see Usually, like, people try to go to the comic book realm or, like, we talk with Chalamet doing just straight dramas and, like, going like dr- going the drama route clearly in the artsy-fartsy route, whatever you have to do, franchise route. He's doing, like, I'm doing everything and then just getting my name out there, and I love it. And he, he got to, like, the final, the climax was with him and Denzel. Like, that's must have been, like, it's a dream. Yeah, that's a dream for any actor, actress in the world, and he got to do that now. Like, Wow. You can only imagine like him, like when he found out he's McDuff, he's going to go against one-on-one with Denzel on the big screen directed by a Coen brother. Like that is like peaking. That's like, like for most people, you know, he's got a lot, he's got a long career ahead of him, but that I couldn't, I couldn't imagine what he was going through as that was happening. Uh, speaking about the cast too, we talk about what makes a Coen brothers movie. I mean, I thought this was all going to be stage actors alongside Denzel and Francis McDormand. But then I see Harry Melling, yep, right? Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Brendan Gleeson, also a known collaborator with uh, the Coen brothers, right? He plays King Duncan. You got um, Steven Root. You, you know him as the fat guy from Dodgeball, <laughs> but he's also in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. He's in No Country for Old Men. 
it's they have these frequent collaborators just like pta has his <laughs> loser loser <laughs> no 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 sorry <laughs> l for love l for yeah, love i mixed that up, I, I, I mixed that up with daddy yeah. daycare <laughs> we're talking about we're the, we just did we did a daddy daycare accidental drop on a, uh, a review of Macbeth. Um, yeah, the guy that does like Elf for Love and Dodgeball, that's who we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Yours aren't watching the YouTube here. But uh, I just like, and Francis McDormand, obviously the most frequent collaborator. I just like how they kept their like touch on it, right? Where it's still like recognizable. You know, it's a Cohen's brother, like Cohen brother movie. Without those and, isms that we talked about for the most part, like the humor or central right. characters. things. And like um, uh, Francis McDormand was okay. I didn't think she was like phenomenal i don't think she was on the level of denzel Den- this is like a dense the movie is Macbeth, so it's about Macbeth, and it's going to be about his story and everyone knows like the tragic story of Macbeth and his like descent into uh insanity so uh i also really quick i want to talk about the witches the witches were so creepy in this movie Very so effective. creepy and i thought who uh the actress i looked it up earlier uh she did a phenomenal job i'm gonna pull, pull her name up really yeah quick. she's in a couple other things as well and she's just she plays like always like a like she's in like a harry potter order of the phoenix and she's uh in the beginning of that movie where she's Catherine like hunter yes Catherine hunter she's in, she's like yeah harry, also harry mellon there harry mellon and that and that as well yeah but uh, dude i have a couple things to say about harry potter but continue but order of the phoenix like she's the woman like carrying the cart but she's really like watching harry potter harry like while he's like in the muggle world remember like you remember her right yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, I didn't I, see a head nod or anything. So sorry, I was, like, I, I was looking up. I was looking up something because there, J.K. Rowling has to be a massive Macbeth fan. Do you? Did you catch any of that? This Harry Potter like type of like uh, references or Harry Potter references Macbeth. Uh, when the witches are standing above, right? Um, Macbeth, Denzel's character. They did the. Double, double, oh, yeah. in trouble, yes, yes. fire burning, cauldron, bubbles. <laughs> like, I remember singing that. That's why I remember it. I sang it in elementary school because that was a huge Harry Potter song. And uh, and then also when Denzel is talking in the water to these children, I'm thinking, oh, this is Moaning Myrtle. This is this is Harry Potter. Like, they, like they're like, like, I just see so many similarities there. Sounds really weird to say, but I think just J.K. Rowling was really inspired by Shakespeare. And I, that's interesting when you think about the type of movies and the, the, the movies that she's a part of, the books she's written. Any great it's writer a, cool. is probably inspired from Shakespeare and Macbeth or Romeo and Juliet or both. Right. Um, any, any other thoughts you want to have on Macbeth before we get to our top five, which this did not crack either of ours? I, I, again, I'll just say I'm not a big play guy. I'm not a big like this style, like the, I'm not, I wasn't my, this is my cup of tea. So even though I think Denzel was great, I think Brandon McDormand was good. I don't think she was great. I don't think she was as bad as some people have been saying. I just don't think that she was nearly as good going up next to Denzel, even though I myself have called her the greatest woman, uh, greatest actress of all time at points here. So I don't think she was great in this, but all in all, she's still unbelievable. And yes, like the formal dialogue gets you crazy, but I think, like you could tell Denzel, like when he's going paranoid and then like when he feels like he's invincible, like his he's, physical he, acting was insane in this movie. Right. So you could still like see where this is going and you could still follow along. It just might take you an extra few minutes, but I will say don't watch this at night because you'll fall asleep. Yeah. The lighting is very good, but the black and white still overpowers you, powers you to an effect where it's like you'll fall asleep. And I remember learning like the black and white, like setting was perfect just because if we, anyone remembers like studying Shakespeare when they're younger, 
it's light and dark imagery. That's like he founded this crap. You know, that, that's his. That, that that's Correct. all him. Uh, yeah, because that's, that's what we're learning about, like literary themes. We read Shakespeare, read Romeo and Juliet. Like light and dark imagery was huge. Um, it was perfect and uh, really creepy. Really creepy. And I, creepy. I, I like those hunters. I mean, those witches. Excuse me. And like acting as the crows. When I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh! Like they are in. Like when she spit up that finger, I gasped. I was like, oh my god. That was <laughs> that looked real. Yeah, like that, that looked good. It was great acting, and she was so flexible. She like putting her legs behind her head. I was just like, "Oh my god!" It's like Gollum, you know. This is where Gollum came from. I was trying to think how they did that. Like, did they get like because like her face was showing the whole time? Like, oh, it's not a stunt double, so it's like must be fake arms and legs. But like, they look so real. Yeah, it's gotta be. So a I was thinking like the lighting maybe like made it look like it wasn't real, but it was that was very impressive uh, to make it look real. That was impressive. Uh, do you want to drop a score on this before we get to the top five? <sighs> I didn't know if we were going to score this one or not. Uh, this is going to sound harsh, but uh, 68. Wow. Yeah. It's a, I, this is so hard to grade. <laughs> it, it, you, if you, you're a play guy, you could probably say it's like a 90 something, but I am not the formal formal dialogue. And I don't know. It, it was yeah, a little boring because you couldn't understand it and you're just kind of following along. Yeah. 68 for me. The, the final act is pretty good. Um, first act and the, some parts in the middle are pretty brutal. I'll, I'll just go with a 76, but just don't take that for anything. I'm not a Shakespearean and out. I'm not, I, I don't know how to analyze Shakespeare enough to like actually know what I'm talking about in that capacity, but Ricky flex, let's get to our top five Coen brothers movies. Okay. Uh, why don't you give your number five and I'll see if it matches up on my list. So, Doctor, I have been contemplating. This has been my hardest choice, number five. Are we going with, like, the best five or, like, our favorite top billing five? I think it's a know? mix of both. Like, I, I really picked my five favorite, but I also think they're, like, I don't know. I just, like, I, I'm going for, like, rewatchability and, like, Cohen's brothers, like, their style that we talked about earlier. Mm. And, like, do I just, like do I love it? Like, do it, do like, well, just, I guess it's just my enjoyment. Right. I think All right. sometimes it goes I hand think, in hand. Okay. Well, I'm going to do a mix here. Cause then my number four, I'll go, I'll lean towards favorite for number four and here I'll go best. So my number five will be inside Lewin Davis. This Ooh. movie is hard for me to love because it's a movie about a guy that's such a loser. <laughs> he is a loser. And I know Cohen brothers movies, like they're centered around losers a lot. But this is like the main one. Oscar Isaac, I think, is unbelievable. Our king, he's awesome. And folk singer, the music's great. A little sad, but great. There's an Adam Driver appearance. Like, it makes me never want to be a musician. It makes me never want a cat. It makes me, like, nervous about, like, if I ever move to New York or anything. Like, it's just insane. And it's just sad as well. Like, he's, like, going over the grief of his friend who died He's like ruining his life, his himself also get, but also getting unlucky. And he just keeps making bad choices where it's like the choices like are so like obvious, but he still doesn't. And he's just, and you know, he's not dumb. And I don't know, but all in all, this movie, I got to bash it a little bit, but this movie is unbelievable. Like it is, it is amazing. Ricky. I, it is like the, the, the sixties, like folk, like scene in New York City, I thought was amazing. Oscar Isaac's performance is amazing. Overall arc of this character and this story, I thought, I think is amazing. It's just, he's not a lovable loser. He is a loser that you hate to watch. You, man, this is my number two. 
I love Inside Lewin Davis, dude. It is fire. Music sequences, amazing. Like, hey, Mr. Kennedy. Like, it's so that good. The, uh, like, that's going to be the intro into, like, the Coen's Brothers section when we do our top five when I edit this pod. I love, like, Oscar Isaac. His, he, he can sing, too. Like, he is Arcane. a phenomenal singer. And not only that, man, it's the story. It's like, that. It, 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 I think it does such a good job of showing what it's like to be, truly be a singer as a profession. And it's almost like people talk about what's the hardest sport to make it in. They talk about the NBA, how it's nearly impossible. People try, they go overseas, they do all these things, but they never make it, right? And this was like, to me, just a perfect story of a guy who is so true to himself. He's true to his music. And he knows he's like, he's, he will just refuses to convert to this like pop genre, right? And it's leading him down this path where she's just going to keep going. And that's most musicians where they play at these bars and they keep going. They have their place on Saturday night, right? At the local dive. And they just keep going because they think they're going to make it even when they shut the, the door is getting shut in their face. Right? Yeah. I, 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 I know it's like kind of a, it is a depressing movie. It is. And I think another thing about like Coen brothers, they're very real. So it's like that ending for inside Lou and Davis, they want, they don't like, they're not going to give the audience exactly what they want. They, they like, he's not going to hit a record deal on the last time he goes to play at the gaslight. Right. Right. He's, he's going to get beat up again. It's going to be repetition. It's going to keep happening, but he has a passion for it and it's all he knows. And you know, I think like with this movie, like I said, like this is like kind of a tough watch a little bit, but I do appreciate this movie because we need these movies to get made to kind of put audiences People like our father in a reality check. It's so real. It's yeah. so real. They are hard to watch, but we need these movies. I'm not saying they should be the majority, but we do need these. And I think that like this movie really just captures the desperation of a musician and like, like literally just wants like his like artistic freedom, basically. I, like, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like he like he sold out. Like he he gave up his artistic freedom by taking the payout. That's what like oh, another thing that kills me. Like that gave it up. It's heartbreaking because so he takes the money. It happens need. to people. The royalty. It's insane. So, and, and then you see Bob Dylan at the end. So it's like he missed. That, I was going to say it. that's what makes the ending so good. Is that this guy's the <sighs> example who didn't make it? But guess what? He's playing in the same club Bob Dylan is, right? When he's singing like Bob Dylan right afterward, right after. So it shows like you can make it, but it's so slim. Got to get they lucky. All come from the same like. They all come from the same setting. Like they all want to make it. They're telling their story and you have, it's like the passion into like the fairly well scene at the end. It's incredible. Like, I can't believe you didn't get nominated for an Oscar for inside Lewin Davis. It is. It is incredible. I, I don't that, remember that. This is like probably my favorite Oscar Isaac role. And he's one of our favorites, obviously. Um, yeah. So I, that, that's personally my number two. I just love how it shows that world in a very real type of situation. It's not a, it's not a biopic of like the beach boys or like these other pop bands that were coming out at the time. This is like, okay, these, this person is trying to make it with folk music at a time where folk music is dying. Boy, and so he's got to make sure he's that good. That's why Bob Dylan made it, you know? And it's like, ah, I just like it. And the, the eccentric characters you talk about John Goodman on the way, Garrett Headland as John, as a, uh, the guy who's riding with them, Adam Driver, Al Cody, uh, the 
just Justin Timberlake, Kerry Mulligan, like the supporting cast is unbelievable. Kerry mm-hmm. Mulligan, all time B-I-T-C-H yep. in this movie, but deservedly <laughs> so, like based yeah. on the circumstances. And I just looked up the Oscar uh, actors in a leading role. This is, I forgot, this movie's 2013. Like 2014 Oscars is like known to be like one of the like deepest acting uh, Oscars ever. You got Dallas Buyers Club, Matthew McConaughey, which one? Christian Bale, American Hustle, Bruce Dern, Nebraska, Leo, Wolf of Wall Street, and Chef Toil, Ojo 4, and 12 Years a Slave. Like, I've never seen Nebraska, but it's hard to be, for me to picture Bruce Dern being better than Oscar Isaac in this. But you got to have, like, that, you know, that long-timer, like, that, uh, yeah. the veteran in the, in the race, you know? They have familiarity with him, for sure. Um, and I love what they did with the cat in this movie too. The cats that keep showing up. It's like <laughs> this guy, this, this guy's a lonely guy, but it's like keep him. It's like almost like his partner, like that. He, it's like it's like a partner that he's like trying to forget, but he's frequently reminded of, and he wants to have this solo career, but it keeps on finding him. I just think it's like a beautifully told story, even though it's so sad. Um, okay, so do I give my five, my my number five? Because I was my number two. Well, I'm trying to think. Well, honestly. Like I was debating whether that would go to four or five. So do I give my number four and then maybe that's my new number five? I think I should give my number five okay. and All see right. where it lines up. So my number five is Hail Caesar. Uh, so uh, did, did this crack your top five? It did not. Okay. So we have very different lists. So this is definitely more of like a favorite than maybe best. Like I left out like, oh brother, where art thou? Um, just because it, I feel like it's, on so much the repetition of it i've just i've gone to not enjoy it as much as these other coen brothers that i find much more rewatchable i think hail caesar was like once upon a time in hollywood but a decade earlier and just not as cool that's like what i think of with hail caesar um i i personally love like one of my favorite scenes in any movie is the alden Ehrenreich uh scene with ralph fines that's one of the funniest scenes i've seen in a movie it's unbelievably rewatchable. It got him the Han Solo part. Um, it's got obviously a, a George Clooney in a role outside of Ocean's Eleven that I actually like, which is kind of rare for me. Uh, going like Josh Brolin, like his collaboration with the Coen Brothers is something when there's always magic. Uh, I love the Channing Tatum dance sequences. It really captures what Hollywood was like, but also goes into that underground aspect with the Communist Party and everything. So I got Hail Caesar at five. It's probably going to get kicked off now. I like Hail Caesar. It's uh, my number seven. Okay. Uh, I, I think this movie is exactly what you said. It's a once upon a time in Hollywood, or it's like a Lewin Davis, like the character Lewin Davis. It's before it's time. You know, yeah. it's just before it's time and just before it's time. Like he just missed Bob Dylan. You just missed once upon a time in Hollywood. Um, I think with, I think you said a lot of the great things like Ralph Fiennes, Alden Ehrenreich, that scene, unbelievable. I think Josh Brolin's good. I think it doesn't necessarily work the entire movie, but it's good. George Clooney, I thought he was all right, but it's like they just threw a huge, a huge thing at us, but then he disappears throughout the movie and that whole communist storyline. And I just thought that was odd. And we spoke earlier in this episode about Ana de Armas and that like whole lawsuit. We should put in a lawsuit about Jonah Hill. Yeah. Remember this trailer and all these actors and stars in this movie with the Coen brothers in Hollywood? I was like, man, this is going to win like best picture and Oscar. Scarjo, right? Yeah. And scene. then they're barely in it. 
Yeah. So let's throw a lawsuit for Jonah Hill, especially <laughs> in this one. But this cast was so massive, Ricky Flex. This but cast this is- was so massive. It's like it's like in, in my opinion, this cast is similar to like a French dispatch, where it's like you can't expect them all to have notable amount of screen but time. But this is after Moneyball. This is after and, Wolf of Wall and- Street. You have to have Jonah Hill coming off of two Oscar noms in this movie more. And I, I will say, like, you brought up the fact that like, sto- the story kind of gets distracted at times where it's uh, you can't fo- you don't focus on Clooney and what's going on with the Communist Party. You go to different avenues. I do think, like, they're just showing what Hollywood was like. That's why I think it's like Once Upon a Time, like before, like, I was just a few years earlier. Like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is definitely not a focused story at all, right? It's got more electric performances from Leo and Brad Pitt but I think it's going for the same type of thing. It's just Hollywood wasn't as exciting. It wasn't as appealing for audiences as once upon a time, like Hail Caesar, I should say. That one's just like, people don't care as much. Like, oh, yeah, we're hearing about the Communist Party. How many movies have we seen in the 1950s about the Communist Party, you know? Trumbo like, is the same year, right? Or right yeah, after. So year, 2016, year before. year before. And that was unbelievable. But that was like a serious depiction and had one focus. And that was the Communist Party in Hollywood. This one had so many different focuses It had some it. zaniness to it. Yeah, too, and you I had like, liked. and the Josh Brolin, like Mannix character. Like, I think for me as a business, like interest, you know, like interest there. I was intrigued saying like, oh, like he's running the studio, but is he going to go for the big money and the like what's like in the uh, airplanes, like the, the big uh, up and coming industry? Like he decides to stay in Hollywood because he's addicted to it. He loves it. Right. But like it's kind of not what you want to see. It's like find your focus and pick it. Right. They right. should have just picked one, really. And that's kind of weird for a Coen's brother movie, like for the cast, for like like for, for example, Inside Lewin Davis. It's got a great cast, but it's always Oscar Isaac's movie the entire right. time. This one, it's like this like it's great like, cast, but it doesn't have a sole focus. Not you know? to spoil another movie about or Buster Scruggs. If like this was an anthro- anthology, it would have been good anthology. about all these different situations. That would have been interesting. And then at the end, the last chapter, how they intertwine, that would be interesting. Yeah. And speaking of Battle of Buster Scruggs, did it crack your top five? It did not, but I'm guessing it did for you. It did not crack my top five. Oh, wow. Okay. Did not. But uh, so you had not number five inside Lewin Davis. Mine was Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar, I think, is going to be out. What is your number four, Ricky Flex? Dr. O, would my name be Ricky Flex if I didn't have a Nick Cage movie in my top five? Okay. And this is where my favorite comes into play. Inside Lewin Davis, I will admit, is a better movie than Raising Arizona. I will have people out there that disagree with me on that. But Nick Cage in this movie is unbelievable. And this is right after Blood Simple, the first full feature for Co- uh, the Coen's brothers. But I think this one, Racing Arizona, was like the Coen brothers are out here to take Hollywood by the throat and change things up. And I think it was. Oh, yeah. I, and I think Nick Cage in this is unbelievable. I think the story itself is so outrageous with the like even just like having a quintuplets in a Hollywood movie is kind of crazy in itself. And then kidnapping them and then having like your protagonist being like this anti-hero, but not like a mafia situation, but like the kidnappers like this, I thought was incredible. And I think this movie's just fun. And I think the climax is it might be one of the best climaxes in a Coen's brothers movies. Like unbelievable a sequence there. And all around this, what I've just said, what makes this really what makes it a great movie is just not to quote Vin Diesel, but family. It's yeah. really about family. And the ending really shows that and it leaves you with an impact. And 
even though this movie's so quirky, it's so funny. So zany. Nick Cage is any eccentric. At the end, it's still a story with a theme around it that is so comprehensible to the audience and very impactful. That's why I love Raising Arizona. It's my number four. Maybe it should be five. I have, but it's in my top five for sure. It's going to be on the top five. I had it at six. Um, uh, so I, I think this is like a Chuck Jones like cartoon or whatever come to life. Like it's a live <laughs> action. Like the hearts popping out and everything of his eyes. It's just like it just it has a distinct style to it. Uh, it has the very comedic elements. Sometimes you don't, they're very overt in this movie compared to some of the other Coen brothers movies. Nick cage is perfect as like this, like larger than life character, this cartoonish type of character. It's somewhere he could really thrive. It makes you want to see him like reunite with the Coen brothers sooner rather than later. I don't know if that'll ever happen. Cause I don't know if they can top what they did with raising Arizona, but let's say let's put raising Arizona at five inside Loon Davis at four and then I'll, you want me to drop my number four now and we'll see. Yeah. Let's have a, okay. So I have big Lebowski at four for me. I had it at three. Okay. So that's going to officially be our number three. What do you like about big Lebowski, Ricky? It's more about I, what do you don't like? <laughs> I think I, I was just rate, uh, hyping up raising Arizona. Big Lebowski is their best comedy. And I think it's better on the rewatch because the first time you watch it, you're thinking this feels very random, very weird. But on the rewatches, you realize like this isn't just a hilarious movie with a guy named the dude and like dudeism is like a religion, right? It's all time nickname, by the way. But it's a movie that's actually a movie similar to what I just said about family with raising Arizona. But the iconic moments in this movie that also is like a character study of like what L.A. was in that in that time period. And Jeff Bridges is like the face of that, that spiritual phase that people go through in, in LA, I think is hilarious. And early nineties, like I mentioned, early nineties, LA, Philip Seymour Hoffman, RIP to him, but he was great in this movie. And my favorite John Goodman performance of all time Easily. is in the big Lebowski. And in Ar- this in Argo, but this is, I think this is way better than Argo, but Argo I, I love too. I think this is so much better than Alan Argo. Arkin blows him away in Argo. I'm not going to lie. Right. But I do like and, him in that movie. And honestly, I love him in 10 Cloverfield Lane and a bunch of other movies as well. But um, easily my favorite John Goodman movie. My favorite scene in um, a Coen Brothers movie is in this one with the gun. Yeah. And stepping over the line. That's easy. You stepped over scene. the line. <laughs> <laughs> the rules here, this ain't up. <laughs> and that's also like a character study in itself, like uh, with Vietnam veterans. Like that's a huge character. Study. Like one of the first ones to really like do that in a comedic sense. Very interesting. Big Lebowski is my number three. The personally. gun scene is one of my favorite movie scenes of all time. And I actually watched it as a part of my Cold War class that I took in college. I took a whole semester, just a whole all about the Cold War. Um, they talked about the impact of Vietnam, the PTSD effect. And that's the scene my professor showed me. And that professor became my favorite professor of all time. Shout out, shout out, Dr. Tully. Uh, that what a homie like John Goodman, I think just steals those scenes, but also you're stealing scenes from a guy who's so electric. That is the dude, right? That is Jeff Bridges and probably his most iconic role. I want to say, right? Like maybe crazy yeah. hearts up there. I don't, I don't, this I don't, is more iconic though. Yeah. It's the like, dude. dude. He was just in a commercial, Super Bowl commercial. Remember white Russians, like the white Russians drink 
Steve Buscemi, like iconic trio, That's the my Jesus rug. roles, dude. Like it, there are some great, great, great characters. Sam in this Elliott, movie. Sam Elliott, just randomly at the like drinking Lone Texas Rangers, like at the bar. And or it, whatever, it has like at a, a bowling alley. And the thing also about I think did I talk? I don't. Even, you have to remind me if I talked about this uh, earlier. But like the interesting ending points of Coen Brothers movies, they're never like what you expect. Did I mention this earlier? Maybe I did. But you might have, I forget, but they, that's definitely like a good point. They like end at like inopportune times. It's never like a happy ending. Oh, this is a great place to end. They'll just be like, okay, it's over. Like we told the story. Yeah. We don't need to say anything else. Boom, it's done. Right. You can assume what you want afterwards. But I definitely have Big Lebowski on there. That's going to be our number three. So now it's between two. I assume we're going between Fargo and uh, No Country for Old Men. Ricky, am I right about those two? You are correct. So Fargo. In uh, No Country for Old Men, Ricky Flex, what do you have as the number one Coen's Brothers movie? My number one is what I would say is the least Coen's Brothers movie of all time, and that's No Country for Old Men. And I, I think it's thing. you. Wow. Okay. I thought you. I thought we were gonna have a battle because you know, like I've told the audience, you guys, this. My favorite genre is psychological thrillers or thrillers. No Country for Old Men, just like flipped, like is so non Coen's brothers. It's insane. And then this is what they win the Oscars for instead of Fargo in 97. Because Far- like Fargo loses the English patient, right? The Ralph Fiennes movie. Um, Bone Defoe in that, of course. But the Ralph Fiennes movie, everyone thought like Fargo should have won that. Like Fargo is an amazing movie. And that is probably the prototypical Far- uh, Coen's brothers movie. If I had to pick yes. one, that would be the one. Absolutely. And then I'm going to pick the opposite for like their top villain. I just think this movie is amazing. And I think it's a cinematic achievement that should it have one best picture over th- uh, there will be blood. It's up for debate, but I just think that this whole movie, like I said, it's just the opposite of what they do. There's not a lot of dialogue. There's not a lot of music. There's a lot of silence in this movie. They tension. let the scene play out They let, for, for the tension. I wish I saw this in theaters. This in theaters would have been amazing on edge of my seat. Like there's very few humor in this. You're so focused, and man, I just think the like the they just did minimal things, like extra things that they usually do. There's no quirkiness in it. There's nothing, no extra dialogue. It's just straight to the point. I love this movie. It's my number one. I, I it's mine too. Pacing's awesome. The for the entire movie. Uh, even without music, like it doesn't help pass the time. It like whenever Bardem is on screen, you don't need music. There's just natural tension. Uh, he's got one of the all time best like serial killer weapons with the oxygen tank that he just pops in people's head, the pressure to the brain, uh, him popping the lock. It's unforgettable. Josh Brolin turns in pretty much a, which, what makes him an A-lister, right? Like, I don't know what, like, obviously he was in Goonies in the eighties, but was Josh Brolin, would he be what he is today without no country for old men? Probably not. Probably not. This like gave him opportunities. I don't think he would have gotten if he didn't do this movie. Um, I'll, like, as I said, Bardem, like is turns in all time villainous performance. Not uh, one of the best, if not the best non comic book villain of all time, rivaled by only himself, Silva and Skyfall. <laughs> right. It's, 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 it's interesting. Do you see they're doing an actors on actors with Daniel Craig and Javier Bardem? you see that rats <laughs> they start eating each they only eat rat yeah that so was. i like but like as i said before um 
all time like character iconic limp his conversations with like common folks and uh him installing fear that conversation with mary mcdonald's character at the end of the movie pretty much got him the oscar uh his interaction with woody harrelson that one-on-one that sit down woody harrelson is basically an all-time extended cameo in this movie he's in like Mm. three scenes but he nails it the entire time it's like very worth it's very much worth having him in this movie, even for those limited times, uh, that limited time. The, uh, the coin flip scene. Yeah. All time scene. Speak about tension. Right. Doesn't matter what I pick. <laughs> it doesn't matter what I pick. Well, Choose. I think it does. Choose. Uh, he's, he's, it's incredible. Um, I'm trying to think if I had anything else about this movie. It's just, it's just, it's perfect. one of the most effective movies. The ever. one thing I didn't like, as much like I, I people talk about the Tommy Lee Jones character. He does t- tie the movie in very well for like the setting because he's this guy who's been around, right? He's seen all these things and it's never changing. And he see he wants to be like his dad and all this stuff and how it's going to like, he's just a classic like Texas sheriff, you know? And uh, I didn't care much for his monologue at the end. I was like, uh, that's the one part where it really slows up. I know a lot of people love it. I don't care for it too much. I think it's kind of a weaker part of the movie. I think compared to, it's just hard to follow, like the Anton Chigurh and Josh Brolin. It's just so like, you're so intrigued by those situations. And it's just like the Tommy Lee storylines, like kind of just following it. So like, you already know what's going on and you're just basically just following him just to see like his perspective of things, but you don't really need it, even though like it is nice to have it. And I do think that monologue kind of ties in together. And this is another one of those situations where it's like, the more you rewatch it, the more you realize like how Tommy Lee Jones's character That's is true. Effective. That's a great point. But at the end of the day, that is if you, if you had to pick a weak spot for this best picture winner and one of the best movies in the 21st century, probably inside my top, easily inside my top 10, that would be like the weakest spot out of the main storylines. Right. And then we had to go, we had to talk about Fargo, our number two uh, Fargo, as you said before, perfectly said when you said it's the most Coen Brothers movie out of any Coen's Brothers movie. It's a drama. It's got the dark comedy to it. Eccentric characters. Francis McDormand with a, a fa- fantastic performance. An absolutely like stunning performance. I love watching her in this movie. Uh, basically, I like seeing that character change for her right before the third act begins, where she has that con- she goes out on that quote unquote date with the person she knew in high school and she, the person's hitting on him right. and he lies about like his dead wife and everything. Oh. I always questioned while I was watching this, like, why did they even have this scene? But this is where she finds out this happy go lucky person, all these people around her, are, like happy go lucky. She lives in this fantasy land, but she finds how dark the world actually is. And then it helps her like crack the case and then like find out about William H. Macy. Like I, I used to hate that scene. I'm like this really like, I don't see the point of this when I rewatch, I'm like, Oh, this gives her the edge, you know? So uh, I love it. I love the performance. And I mean, is there any other character more hateable than William H. Macy in this movie? In history, he, movie history. He plays like the same guy, a very similar guy. Loser. In every movie, always a loser. But you always like, you kind of feel sympathetic for him at times, like Boogie Nights, Magnolia. But at the end of the day, he's, he's a, a loser and he's psycho. Yeah. Like Wild Hogs. apple tattoo but uh yeah but uh going back to friends mcdormand like this is easily my favorite performance ever by her um love this performance this is a very violent movie i just every time i think of fargo first thing i think of is i won't actually who hasn't seen fargo um the tree the tree the tree yeah yeah, 
yeah, I, I was going to, I was going to say that, but I didn't want to spoil it, but there nah, you go. It's Fargo. But um, another thing I was just saying, this is that Minnesota, I feel like it's just done dirty in this. <laughs> I don't know where the Coen brothers are from, but this movie is called Fargo, but this just takes out Minnesota, like, like stereotype uh, stereotypes. They overdo right. it. Like it's like, it gets yeah. to the point they are making fun of them. Right. It's clear. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, they're making them feel. It's they're, like, that's why it didn't win best picture. Go lucky. Right. It's like, it, it's, it's like, that's the reason why they didn't win best picture. They picked a more slower burn drama in the English patient. And they didn't want to pick more of a satire feel movie, but this movie is just near perfect. It's unbelievable. As in like, it has every element that you would want as an audience member. It's right. It's funny. It's violent. It's action packed thriller tension storylines, drama. It's amazing. And the acting is incredible. And yeah, Everything put together. It's an unbelievable film. Only second ah. to No Country. <laughs> it's that, that in the balance between the killers is really cool. They like got the really cool. Steve Buscemi. is like the louder. The guy who loves to talk. And then you have the other guy who just wants to remain in peace and quiet. I got to look up this guy's name because uh, I should know it. Who? I can't believe he didn't go on to like some incredible career. Who? The Steve Buscemi's he, partner? Yeah. Peter uh, Strom. He's like German or something. Uh, Stormare, Stormare, Stormare. Stormare. So Peter Stormare. I can't believe, like, I would have thought he would have had a like a fantastic career after this movie. If I had to like do a comparison, actually, now I'm thinking about it. Like same time period. This is '96 movie. You think of Pulp Fiction '94, like Ving Rhames, Marcellus Wallace. I think Peter Stormare could have been that. You know, it just that didn't really pan out for him. But uh, I mean, Steve, Steve Buscemi. This is like this is arguably my favorite Steve Buscemi role. This is better than uh, easily better better than Reservoir Dogs, I think. Hmm. Mr. Pink. Yeah, I think that's better too. But I like this is easily better than Big Lebowski because that was John Goodman to the max there. Um, The the other two overpowered Buscemi so much in that movie. Right. So like you can't pick that. So I think that that's a good safe pick. Um, But all in all, like it's tough, like picking like between these two because it's like, do you pick the one? where it's like the more Cohen's brother one, or are you going to pick just the thriller that's a near perfect movie? And I think that's, I think that's no country for all men. And I have a bias towards those type of movies, but if you're more of the comedic route, you're going to pick Fargo. So either way, if you haven't Fargo at number one, I'm just speaking to the audience here, honestly, I don't blame you, but at the end of the day, not for me. And it's gotcha. clearly not for you, doctor. No. So our final top five for Cohen brothers movies, we're doing raising Arizona at number five, Inside Loon Davis at number four, The Big Lebowski at number three, Fargo at number two, and number one, No Country for Old Men. That's our top five. Any quick hitters you want to talk about in terms of honorable mentions? I had True Grit at six. You had at six. Wow. I did. I actually rewatched this one before this episode. I, it was Jeff Bridges coming off Crazy Heart for his Oscar there. I think the Haley Steinfeld performance is the best out of the bunch nominated i do think she was amazing on this rewatch it's very impressive what i think if i had to pick like least favorite josh bowman was in it for so little so i'm not i can't pick him even though i didn't love him in this either but uh i would pick matt damon out of the three i would pick mm-hmm. him as the as third didn't love him in this but he wasn't bad he had the texas ranger vibe um but i think this was very good especially coming off like this is like what do you think of true grit you think of john wayne yeah. So, but, but like a lot of people say, like that guy, John Wayne's Oscar, didn't it? True yeah, Grit. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people still say this reboot was actually better than the John Wayne and, Oscar. A lot yeah. of people said John Wayne got that Oscar just because 
it's like he put in his time. You right. Know? It's like, the what, Oscar cliche. The honorary. Yeah. What about you? What you had? What do you have at six? Or what do you? I have? had raising Arizona at six. So what'd you have at seven? Seven. Let me go to my list. I had Hail Caesar at seven. Well, you, you, I think I know brother where art though. Okay, I had that at nine. Um, I have to double check though. Let me look this up. Cool. Yeah, I had. Oh no, I had old brother where art there at eight. Bow to Buster Scruggs at nine. Okay, I had oh, I had old brother where art thou then Buster Scruggs. I, did I had the not same thing. have Buster Scruggs ahead of that. Buster Scruggs would have been so good if they tied up all those stories together. It's just like that. There's some stories in there that are way better than the others. I love the second half of the movie. It's that first half I didn't love, but it kind of goes into that like idea of we talked about with Hail Caesar, where it's covering this entire setting, where it's tall showing you all these different types of people right in the West during that time. And uh, whether it's the cowboy, whether it's the rancher, whether it's the people on the Oregon trail, whether it's the, the woman who's supposed to be arranged into a, a marriage with someone out West, or it's like someone on a road show with Harry Melling's character. It's just, it, it really covers all the, the, all the bases there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I had Oh brother were out there right before it. I think just for the soundtrack, really. Like the soundtrack won a Grammy for God's sakes, like very impressive, mm-hmm. and that is like, crazy. And I think it did a good job, even though, like Clooney, I'm not the biggest Clooney fan, but I think more of the ensemble and the depression, like this, it was an interesting story, like kind of an adaptation in the depression of the Odyssey is like what you always think of with this movie. So I do think that's very interesting, um, and I think it just edges bow at a bus scrugs for me i don't know like any thoughts there what for for are you talking oh, brother for, yeah so like like a lot of people just associate the music um i'm a big john Turturro guy i do like even this movie it's kind of an, like an eccentric role for him uh i don't know just buster scrugs it's just not really it, to me i thought it was just gonna be a better it's gonna be better as a netflix series i just i like i i just have old brother then ballad it just to me, it just makes sense. It, it, it would have, you know, how they cut up like Hateful Eight into chapters on Netflix. They should have done some same thing with Buster Scruggs. I agree. I, I still liked it. Um, Burn After Reading. Where'd you put that one? Next at number 10. Yeah, that's the last one I've seen. And I've only seen parts of it. <laughs> yeah, I, it was the movie after No Country, right? So we, we were talking earlier about with Bong Joon Ho, like, what, what, what are you going to do after you win your best picture, right? Your like big triumph. And, they decided to go the route of crazy and they went with burn after reading. Let's put the biggest actors in the world out there. Let's get the biggest outside we can. And let's just make something that's incredibly out, like unbelievable and all over the place and just see how it make it work. And it was fun to see the biggest movie stars. Like it's like the biggest movie stars trying to act normal, but they're just huge dummies and they're not normal at all. And it's, and it's all centered around like, I just John think of, Malkovich being his normal self and thinking he's above everybody and smarter everybody. I, I just think of the gif of Brad Pitt dancing. Yeah. And it's, speaking of like, we talked about Buster Scruggs. I know we just talked about it, but like the lasting legacy of that movie, like everyone's going to forget about that movie. They're going to see it on Netflix. People are just going to scroll past it. But when you see the thing of that movie, think of James Franco like the first time. Oh, yeah. Right. It's just like, it, it's the memes and Coen Brothers movies. Good point. Yeah. Um, Okay. 
That's going to do it for our Coen's Brothers rankings, and that's going to do it for episode 73 of the Drive-In Podcast, okay? Make sure you're subscribed, whether you listen on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Make sure you're following us on all social media, okay? At the Drive-In Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Subscribe to the YouTube clips on the daily. Ricky Flex, you had something to add? Next week, are we predicting these Oscar noms that are going to come out the following week or what? So we're predicting Oscar noms next week. We'll see how we do. We'll put out our projections and uh, we'll see how we line up. Right. We'll do a little Instagram slide action. See how we do. Um, That's going to do it. All right. Until next time, Ricky Flicks and Dr. O, we will smell you.